All right, good morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new, we're glad that you're here. If you're not new, we're always glad that you're here. Uh, as you just heard, uh, this text is kind of a weighty text this morning, and so um, not easily weighted into. So let me just say two things up front before we jump in. One, when I was a teenager, um, you, had to, you had to go to about this back in the 90s uh, to a thing called a record store. And at a record store, you actually buy your albums at, like, in Louisville, it's Ear Ecstasy. Um, and uh, on certain labels, these are the ones that I was trying to buy, uh, they had this little uh, white and black sticker that said Explicit Advisory Warning. And I want to just kind of issue one of those explicit advisory warnings, particularly if you're here and uh, you're a sensitive type, or if you're here and you're not used to people in a church talking about like normal human things. Uh, <laughs> we like to spiritualize everything in the church. We like to talk about human things because uh, the Bible talks about human things. Um, or especially if you have kids. I don't see any kids in here, but if you have, I'd say this is probably appropriate for like sixth grade and up. Uh, so if you have children and you don't want to hit them as we talk about uh, sexuality and lust, um, I would encourage you just to drop them downstairs or let them go out into the gallery because we're going to be talking uh, appropriately but honestly about uh, that topic this morning as Jesus does. Second thing, normally uh, week in and week out, our rhythm and pattern for teaching from on uh, Sunday morning teaching the Bible is for one of our elders to get up. So here in Midtown, we have three uh, elders, uh, excuse me, four elders, two of us on staff and two not on staff. Uh, mostly, you hear from us, um, but we also uh, want to be a church that encourages the full use of the gifts of the body. And so we even invite uh, both men and women from time to time to share. Now, it's, it's a lot to prepare, and so we don't do it every week. As you know, if you've ever taught in front of a large group or made a presentation, there's a lot of preparation that goes into that. And so um, not only, it's oftentimes not practical for us to be able to do that every week, but particularly in a text like this, um, I told, this is my wife Emily, and she'll introduce herself here in a minute, but uh, I told my wife, we're going to be talking about sex and lust this weekend. I am not doing that alone. <laughs> and half of our audience is uh, not male, and so I'm definitely not getting up and presuming to tell women what lust uh, looks like for them. So, you're going to go with me. So, we are here together, and we are going to be kind of alternating and teaching and talking about um, this passage together. So, Dave, you have not, you're not up here a lot. I would love for you just to introduce yourself and uh, kind of make it known. Okay, my name is Emily, and um, I'm sitting here to bring it in. I'm super nervous that the first time I'm on stage is speaking about less. <laughs> Three weeks really including this we're going to be diving into three very 
difficult topics, probably topics you could argue are at the forefront of our culture right now. Um, if, you're, if you notice, uh, sequentially, we've skipped anger. It's not because we don't want to talk about rage. Um, but <laughs> next week, we have a guest uh, speaker, a friend of mine, uh, who's a pastor of the world named James Westbrook. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just really enjoyed him. He's a church planter. He's moved to Oakland soon to plant uh, a, a church there. But he's going to be preaching next week. When I asked him, I said, hey, what do you want to preach on, lust or anger? He's like, give me anger. Uh, I don't want to do lust. So he's going to be talking about anger. So these two uh, sections here, 27 and 30, and then 31 and 32, really make up one section um, with, with a kind of a big idea. But think about it. These three topics, anger, lust, divorce, sex and violence, and family. Is there anything more germane in this cultural moment than understanding those things and, and seeking to reclaim those and recover God's design? Beautiful design for those realities. And oftentimes they're linked. Anger and sex. Sex and anger. Sex and violence. Hostility. Chaos. Anxiety. These things all go together. This is a progression in the sermon, even as we think about these. But I want to just start here about our time looking again at this uh, command, which is largely negative. So Jesus says, uh, you just read the second ago, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is obviously talking to men. Because men in that time had most of the cultural power, particularly in the religious domain. Men had lots of power. They, uh, they were the rulers. They were the judges. They were the scribes. They were the legal experts. They interpreted the laws by which Jewish people and so what's interesting here is that Jesus says, you've heard it said. So what he's doing is he's quoting something that in the kind of mental furniture or uh, social architecture of Judaism would have made perfect sense. Everybody knows exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He's quoting Exodus 20, the seventh commandment. He said, you, you all know this. So he's assuming that they have a biblical sexual ethic. Now here's the challenge for us bringing this in the modern day, is we can't assume that you and I share that same social and mental architecture. Because when we hear Jesus say, don't commit adultery, don't lust after a woman, all we hear is Jesus is some kind of a police officer laying down rules and prohibitions because maybe God is some kind of a Victorian prude. Maybe God is is just arbitrarily, whimsically seeking to, as Freud said, suppress human desires. And that's how we often think of prohibition. But prohibition is not just God's no. If you understand the law, which is what this is all about here, Jesus came to institute and call us to a deeper reality, a deeper understanding of law and righteousness. Law is always connected. Law, as a matter of fact, flows out of love. Without love, law makes no sense. And so Jesus' no here is a yes to something else. What Jesus is doing is dialing into something deep inside the human heart. It's not just about him saying no to illicit sexual behavior, about prohibition. It's about provision. It's about provision, about him saying yes Honor and recover something that matters deeply to the heart of God. Things that God has designed 
in our sexuality to lead to wholeness and flourishing as human beings. There are two deep longings that Emma and I want to talk about here. Uh, and so we're going to go back. We never want to talk about lust. We never want to talk about sex. We never want to talk about marriage. Unless we first go back to the beginning and say, what is God trying to protect? What is he trying to cherish? So that we don't just hear this as no. There's two things God's after. Two things that you long for as human beings. Two things culture longs for as we're human beings. Dignity. Okay, so um, I think it's very important that, like Brandon said, we don't start at lust, that we start at God's um, original um, framework and design for humanity. And so in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, it's up on the screen, um, he says, God says, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So this passage is giving us a framework for who we are. Um, He's giving us a framework for what it means to be fully human. And the framework that the Lord has laid out for us is that God has created us man and woman in his image, giving us dignity, value, and worth. So who we are um, at the beginning, God's creation, has dignity, value, and worth. So that's what's most true of us. And it's our job and responsibility um, to recognize each other as complementary fellow image bearers, embodied and gendered souls with longings, desires, and needs. Um, what it means, this is what it means to be uniquely human. So really what where we need to start at is what it means to be human. That when we were created, there was an original design that deep inside of us, that God has given us, God-given longings and desires that are representative of him. So it's not bad to desire. Um, that was at, the, at creation. So it's very important that we stay um, anchored in that. And that God, the, the last part of the verse, it says to them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So we are commanded um, to have sex and to have children. And the idea would be that we would multiply God's presence on earth. So there is a command there. It's not a bad thing. I think sometimes for women, um, based on our experiences, sex can feel um, like a bad thing or something that's dirty or gross, depending on what your background is. But it's very important that our starting point, um, before we move into talking about um, our sin, we need to think about what was God's original um, design for humanity. So just so we can clear with metaphor, I'm assuming you know what be fruitful, multiply. We talk about fruit and seed. Uh, if you're over 40, you know that this might resonate with you. We're not gremlins. We don't pour water on us, and we just multiply. Okay? Uh, if you don't know what that reference refers to, feel free to uh, look it up on YouTube uh, later. But uh, procreate, like he's saying. I, I command you one of the most beautiful commands in the Bible. Be fruitful. Have lots of sex. Multiply. My image through the building of families and the reproduction of families. But it's not just for uh, creating family. God gives the gift of sex to deal with our second longing, and that is the longing to have intimacy. Part of what it means for us to be human is to recognize what Genesis 2, verse 18 says. It's not good for a man or human. 
there's a sense of incompleteness. That although we long for uh, wholeness and completion with other people, we feel alone. Genesis chapter 2, from the beginning, God created many. He says it's not good for them to be alone. And then on down, he goes on to say, I will make a helper fit for him. A like opposite is literally the word there. A like, a strong helper. It's the same word throughout the Old Testament that's used for God Himself. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and will become one flesh. The deepest desire of hearts will make it. It's intimacy. Another human. We were created for interpersonal. Fellowship, emotional connection with another human being. To put it like this, we're created to be known all the way down, loved all the way down. I mean, isn't that your greatest hope to be known, and yet your greatest fear to be known for who you really are, not who you project to be, but who you really are, and then to be accepted, to be received, to be loved despite your flaws, despite your weaknesses? That's the kind of intimacy we crave. That's the intimacy of friendship. That's the intimacy of emotional and relational attachment, mutual love of the soul, the mingling of souls, the Bible says. That eventually goes public in the physical act. But the physical act is last. It's the last thing. It's an expression. It's the consummation of everything else. You connect at the soul level, and then there's a vulnerability and freedom. To go public with that. So what's true at the relational level, what's true at the emotional level, what's true at the spiritual level, becomes true physically and legally in marriage. Sex is whole person integration. Mind, body, soul. It's the bringing together of those patterns. And it's supposed to be fun. I mean, that Christians get a bad rap. We're anti-sex. No, we should be the most pro-sex people in the world. God made sex for not just procreation, enjoyment. We have a whole book of the Bible that I bet you've never studied if you grew up in church because they kept it from you because they're afraid of it. Uh, oftentimes, religious people are afraid of it. The Song of Solomon. It's a whole entire book about erotic love and physical arousal. Let me just read some of it to you to make you blush this morning, okay? Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Here's the woman talking to her man. My lover's lips are lilies, dripping gold myrrh. His body is a polished ivory tusk. Do I have to explain what ivory tusk is referring to? <laughs> It means what you think it means, and I have Hebrew scholars to back it up. <laughs> this is my lover, and in response, the man comes back. Your stature is like that of a palm tree. I used to live in South Florida, lots of palm trees. Your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I will climb the palm tree, and I will take hold of the fruit. <laughs>
it's that distortion that Jesus is speaking to in this very passage. Why are we not to commit adultery? Why are we not to, to use each other for lustful intent? It's because Jesus is trying to honor intimacy and dignity. It said. And if you remember where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes and he announces the good news of the kingdom. Blessed are you because the kingdom of God is here. I am here present among you bringing good news for the outcast, for the poor, for the downtrodden, for the oppressed. I am here and I've come, Jesus says, to show you a deeper righteousness. That's what Josh talked about last week. A deeper righteousness. I've come to make you a beautiful, resilient, authentic community of resilient love for you to be light and salt in the world. And I'm going to deepen your understanding of what it means to be whole. That's what righteousness means. It means to be whole in our humanity. And that's why he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. So what Jesus is saying is, you've heard it said this way, and you've misinterpreted what the law means. I've come, they, they misinterpreted about making it external, about making it about fear-driven compliance. Jesus says, I say to you, I am the very presence of God. I'm going to reinterpret this for you. I come as one who teaches with authority. Let me tell you what the law was really meant to tell us about God and about his people. Because here's what men were doing in this law. Do not commit adultery. That is the seventh commandment. And so what good religious men were doing, Pharisees and others, is they thought if they didn't physically touch another person's genitals, then they were clean. Commit adultery is a very specific word and means exactly what you think it means. Sexual intercourse with another person. And they were saying, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. And, and same thing with anger. We're not murdering people. And Jesus is saying, well, it's, it's not, you're not just okay with each other as long as you're not physically stabbing them to death or as long as you're not uh, using them physically. That's not the heart of the Seventh Amendment. This is the essence of superficial religious compliance. When he says, don't lust, what does it mean to lust? That word lust is not referring to sexual desire. He's not saying, kill your sexual desire in public. And you just said that. We're designed for that. He's not saying, you never are allowed to notice another person's beauty. You can't help but notice other people's beauty. And if you walk around trying not to, you're going to live a life full of shame, which actually deepens the cycle. What he's talking about here is compulsive self-indulgence. Compulsive self-indulgence. Fantasy. Literally, the idea here, the word means over-desiring. It's actually a word that's not usually in reference to the New Testament. 60-plus references to this word, epithumia. Only twice, I believe, is it in reference to sex. This word is over-desiring. It's using someone else. The idea here is burning. Using someone else as kindling to burn your own sexual fantasies. It's really a form of grief or theft. Taking something that doesn't belong to you. Even in the realm of imagination. Looking or staring in such a way for the purpose of sexing them in your Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, says that about the false teachers, their eyes are full, their hearts are full of adultery. 
exaggerated fantasy and imagination of a hundred people. It, 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 it seeks to take from somebody else what doesn't belong to them. It demands, and it's, it's truly harassing in, in, in the biblical idea. It demands that you be physically exposed to me, but that I give nothing in return. I'm going to take from you what I need, and I'm going to give you nothing relationally. Lust is always disintegrative. It is coercive. It is violent. It seeks to tear apart. I love that Jesus does not, um, first of all, the way that Jesus advocates for women in this passage, he doesn't only say, um, what, he, what he's addressing is, many of us have experienced um, Less for the unwanted uh, affections of a man that are not physical, and so what Jesus is addressing is that we can be um, we can be on the receiving end of that and, and experience the unwanted advances of a man without them ever touching us. And so I really love how earthy Jesus is in this moment. He's saying and uh, advocating for women, understanding that you can. Um, be violated without someone ever putting their physical hands on you. And so we know this intuitively. Um, we also, as women, we will experience have that feeling of feeling dirty. And when Brandon asked me to talk about this, um, I was kind of like, oh, it's just so uncomfortable. Um, just to be honest, this is very uncomfortable. And I was thinking back, I mean, I've experienced this as an adult woman, but I was trying to think back the first time that I was aware that something was awry. And so I had this memory. I literally haven't thought about it since probably, you know, in the two years after it happened. But I was in about sixth grade. I think it was seventh grade, maybe sixth or seventh grade. So 1993, 94. <coughs> so this is the age when, um, if you think back, we're pausing the Nintendo. The Nintendo can't pause in um, – Long, you know, you have to pause your Nintendo, we would pause our Nintendo games, we would race out to dinner. Um, we couldn't save our games. So this time period where technology was, you know, pretty far behind us. Uh, and we, our family went out to dinner, and, you know, as it was habit at the time, we go out to dinner, we come back, and everybody would race in to see the caller ID. So uh, it was a physical little box that you scroll through, um, which was so awesome at the time. We could know the call without having to check the answer machine. But the next part after checking uh, the caller ID was answering machine. Um, so it was this little box that sat in the family room. It was in the most public place of the house so that everybody could hear it. So nothing like today, obviously. So we ran in and we had dinner, I think, at Shelly's. And we came back in for family dinner. And um, you know, everybody's putting their stuff away, and somebody hits uh, the message machine. You know, it's like they'll get a first message. And then the second message was addressed to me, and it was somebody on the other end um, leaving a sexually explicit voicemail. And so, um, obviously, so at this time, I'm sixth grade, seventh grade, um, have taken family life class, and that's really about where my sexual uh, understanding is at the time. And I remember, um, you know, our whole family being in the room, you know, and I still remember it just like, uh, like a deer in headlights, like this is about me and I don't even understand what's going on. And then somebody smacking the machine, you know, to stop it. Um, and just the humiliation and the embarrassment of that, what that was. And it was the first time that it was like, um, 
in my little finite brain, it was like sex was for procreation. Really, at that time, was really all I understood. Certainly had no understanding that it was for um, about the gratification aspect of that. And then to um, experience somebody saying things and not only just hearing it by yourself, but then in front of your entire family was just absolutely humiliating and degrading. And I remember feeling dirty, and it was like anything sexually related was now dirty and gross and um, to disassociate from it. And so um, and that was at a very young age. And so this is um, what I didn't understand at that time is that that was a, I was hurled into that reality um, at that young age that um, this is a reality that we have to interact with and that's part of sexuality, an unredeemed part of sexuality. And so I think we know this intuitively that um, to being on the receiving end of it, that it's wrong um, because we feel dirty and um, we can feel cheap, like a commodity. Uh, or um, I heard another pastor say it was like a receptacle for men's unrestrained hunger and sex. And um, that is how women begin to associate it being dirty. And, um, you know, we, we talk in church about um, women's desires and things like that and why they struggle. And a lot of this goes back to those early experiences. There are reasons why women have um, negative experiences for sex because certainly I didn't get to the – my understanding at that time was not that sex was a good thing and that God created a good desire. It was something for me to desire. Um, really early on, my um, understanding what it was that – Somebody was using me, um, and it was just over a voicemail um, that was so disturbing and distinction to me as an adult now that I have children. Um, and all of us have experienced this, probably, ladies, like if you've experienced the unwanted stare, the unwanted look, the look that's too long, um, or the inappropriate, uh, inappropriate comments that happen at the office. Um, same thing, I remember working in a restaurant and being like, I don't even know what to do, uh, and then feeling embarrassed, and then feeling you know, like I, I don't even know how to how to respond because then it, you know, you know, there's just a, a feeling of uh, not wanting to own those things, and so all of this that we experience is dehumanizing. And I think uh, this morning I was uh, obviously we're, we've been immersed in this uh, for the past couple days, and I was thinking about, or this morning I was getting ready and I was watching Good Morning America, and Uma Thurman said it. She she's released today. She's um, has released some allegations have been about Harvey Weinstein, and she said all of this is so dehumanizing. I'm like, that's what we're talking about, is that it's not just a physical act. It's the act that, yeah, it's the idea that someone else is the object uh, for my consumption, and that they, there's no recognition of personhood um, or their humanity at their at the base level.
and let your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and put it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This word hell here is interesting. Um, it's the word Gehenna. And it's in reference to a place actually outside the city of Jerusalem that was a garbage dump. And, and what Jesus is saying here is this is the kind of, it's, it's a place that represents unfulfilled longing. It's without the presence of God. It's without love. A place without kindness. It's a place of decay, disintegration, stinks. Perpetual, unfulfilled longing. So that's lust. He can only love thinking it's going to provide some satisfaction. Immediate erotic thrill is 
the most superficial benefit of the sex life. The bodily exposure that arouses and accompanies it can be both profoundly symbolic and powerfully healing. This is the potential for sex. It's the healing, concrete sign of what's happening in the whole relationship. The uncovering of our inner selves, our deepest fears and yearnings. As I look tenderly on the body of another, and as I experience what is to feel the tenderness of another's caress, then the one who accepts and touches my most intimate body and caresses it with tenderness caresses also my inmost being. So it only makes sense that sexual relations can be or should be confined to marriage. For mutual disclosure and tender acceptance is not the activity of a moment, but the delicate fabric of lifetimes. Each time, sex springs from casual encounter, physical disclosure and touching, some of its life-giving and healing nature. <laughs> Every study shows the longer you're married, the better the sex gets. The more happy and more fulfilled you are because you're weaving together a fabric of trust, safety, intimacy, dignity, reinforcing each other's personhood. But what sex seeks to do is to reduce that to a physical act of so doing to celebrate our ability to enjoy It is a deep human longing. 
But literally, reading would not eliminate it. And if you think that the answer to this is superficial conformity to religious strategies to deal with their lust, question accountability. I need to get a filter on my phone. If that's your strategy, and that's all you have, conformity to those rules, those rituals, will not bring you healing. It will put you white knuckle cul-de-sac that perpetuates, exacerbates, despair, shame, guilt. Right? Like, I'm going to go to Nick, right? Trying strategies, trying to be in accountability, trying to change, trying to walk off the lip, that will give more shame, more guilt, more despair, more hopelessness. That hurts. So Jesus promised our That's why he's talking about the eye, the right eye. He's talking about the imagination. See reality differently. I was reminded when Brooke was preaching here um, that a pastor growing up used to always say that you move toward what you focus on. So we only focus on lust, and um, that's why sometimes in accountability when you're only focusing on your lust and you're uh, trying to avoid things and um, we move more toward it. Um, it's a principle found in the scripture that, you know, when we when we make that the ultimate thing, when that's all we focus on, we focus our energy on it, um, we move towards it. And so what Jesus is inviting us to do is to first recognize the dignity, value, and worth that we hold ourselves. Um, and that uh, until we know what's most true about ourselves, we're not able to recognize that in the other person. And so rather than only starting at the lust, we need to look at what's most true about us. And so um, for men, that's an invitation for you um, to know what's most true about you. Because it's impossible for you to look at a woman uh, and see her as a daughter of God, um, made in his image, with dignity, value, and worth, if you don't recognize that in and of yourself. Because what you don't have, what you don't have, you can't give to others. And so it's very important that we start there. Um, and also, don't avoid women. Sometimes the other swing that we have that happens is that um, for women, we might experience men um, not looking us in the face, um, maybe not even looking at another body part, but just not looking us in the face and not treating us with respect. So many times women um, are not trying to sleep with you, they're just trying to have a conversation with you. Maybe they're forced to have a conversation with you. Yeah, a temptress, and really, like, you're just trying to get stuff done in the office, you know, and, um, I'm like, yes, don't, don't indulge yourself with that, you know, thought, and so part of that is recognizing, um, for women that we carry ourselves, um, in an appropriate and secure way, and so part of that is for each of us to do our own work, it really is very beneficial for you to, um, how you can practically apply the sermon is do some work into your story, um, and do some work into why why we do some of the things that we do. And um, but we need to always go back to God's original design and intent. Um, I was kind of thinking about it like if you think about McDonald's. I was with my kids the other day, and they, they keep seeing the sign like 88 billion served or whatever it is. And um, my son, who's 11, he's like, Yeah, I just had the hard belief that this really been that many people served. And I was like, Oh, yeah, exactly. A lot of people eat in secret. Uh, but um, the idea with McDonald's is it is people still eat at McDonald's not because um, 
of their robust, the, just, yeah, the nutrition that's there. Uh, we certainly know it's, it's craving. And so I have a craving. I go, I eat, I'm craving satisfied, you know, and don't tell me where to go. Um, but then the same idea, the same thing um, with life, that, that it's not because we don't know that those things are wrong, or we become slaves to our, our cravings, and we become slaves to the immediate. And so the idea would be that we um, need God's loving transformation for us, for him to redeem our desires, redeem all the way down. Um, and that, that starts with image of God. You have dignity, value, and worth. That you are not a, a compilation of matter. You are not a slave to your physical desires. It's part. We are the body, soul. God gives us bodies. Our bodies are not bad, um, but we are not slaves to that. And so the idea that, that we can, when we center ourselves and do the work of really understanding and embracing our true identity, we can then um, look at others and, and receive others and show value. Um, to the opposite side. So, so how are you, as we go to communion tonight, how are you seeing other people? How do you see the internet? How do you see these digital representations on Tinder? It makes it easy to objectify, right? We're not like three dimensional, four dimensional. He says anyone who looks like this. This isn't just a married man. This is not just to men. He's going to deal with women and Mark and Luke and other places. But how do we see each other? Are we seeing each other as brothers and sisters, as human beings, created in the image of God, with deep longings and desires to be known by Him? Let's step back. How do we see each other? What does it look like for us, as a movement, to retrain our imagination, to move out into the world, to see heaven as people? them and love them in appropriate ways. Married people. Let's not act like this can't happen in marriage. We can commodify each other in marriage. You're here to meet my needs. The need that the dad didn't meet. The need that the boy who uh, sexually harassed me as a kid damaged. We can do that with each other. We can turn each other into just receptacles.
opposite of being God himself. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's to have interpersonal relations with God himself. Ever-deepening presence with God himself. God coming into you, putting his Holy Spirit into you, welcoming you, receiving you, and giving you those things that you long for in sex. He says, I give it to you in super abundance, John chapter 10. And I free you to enjoy it as I actually designed it, as a secondary thing, not the primary. And so the only way we get to this, the only way we experience transformation is by seeing Jesus as the answer to this. We need to be transformed. And this is what he's telling the Pharisees. I'm telling you. He made hearts for you. Did he use those good hands of a loving, benevolent, but skillful speaker who knows exactly what it You realize that's what actually some Solomon is talking about. Right? That we have a true beloved. We have a true lover of our souls. It's Jesus. He came. He allowed himself to be harassed, abused, overmanaged, killed. He laid down his life. So he did this. That's what it means to be a Christian, guys. Just to show up at church and solve the lust. To show up in an accountability group, although that can be helpful, it's not going to solve your lust. Go see a counselor, it's not going to fix it. The only way that will change it is to encounter God first, to meet Him, to receive Him, to learn what it means to love Him. That's the true transformation that allows us to see the real thing. That's what we're going to celebrate here. We have stations in the front and stations in the back. I want you to just take some time to reflect and think about your. Do you see yourself as God sees you? Create an image of God. Have you ever received Jesus into your heart, into your soul? Are you walking in intimate communion with Him? Is He satisfying you? Do you belong to Him? If not, and today maybe for the first time put your trust in Him. Say, God, I need you to come in. Make me new. Sprinkle clean water on me. Cleanse me from my guilt, my shame, my desperation, my hopelessness. to come into that state. That's why he came. He's not disgusted by you. He's not bored with you. When light enters into dark places, it delivers. It doesn't make you. So if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, come and receive communion. He'll point you out for you in your struggle. It's normal. In your struggle against pornography, in your struggle against fantasy, in your struggle against lust, he is here with you. He's giving you all the resources you and victorious does not mean eliminated. The victory is in struggle. But God gives us the freedom and power to struggle with, to love, and give us ourselves. So I'm going to pray for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, would you stay in your seat? Um, this meal is to be shared by Christians. As you receive again, His forgiveness, His love, His affirmation, and you come back to the front. Station to the front, station to the front. Let's pray together. Father, we desperately need your healing. We desperately need to be made whole. Whole of you. God, the fact.
fabric of our souls be built. And then moving outward from our souls and hearts, our bodies, and our relationships, our social contexts. You're so broken, sexually, emotionally, physically. Yeah, we thank you. You came to redeem. Your yoke is easy, your burden is light. You come to restore the sexually broken. You come to side with, advocate on behalf of those. Your power is limitless. We are all powerless. We are all slaves to sin. We are all sufferers in this journey of such a that you just then hold us in your hand. Thank you that you died in that place for our sins and for our shame. Help us to embrace that and to hold on.